You are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you here today. As Ricky mentioned, my name is David, and I've been away for a few weeks, but I'm glad to be back with you today. In fact, I was kind of reflecting on our time together this morning and thinking, you know, when a preacher's out of town, when he's gone for a couple of weeks, he has a lot of words that he doesn't get to use. And, you know, I try to aim for about 30 to 35-minute messages. So if you count three weeks now that I haven't preached, this is the third, we're in for about 105 minutes today. So just go ahead and get ready. And uh, we're just going to have a lot of fun today. We just won't count those last couple of weeks. Just, just kidding. But I do want to welcome those of you who are pod- listening by podcast. Don't turn it off because it really won't be 110 minutes. 102, not more than 102, I'm sure. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you need Bibles, there are some under the chairs there, and there are notes in your bulletins. And if you didn't know this, we have a Riverside app that you can download and follow along there. There's a live event tab, and you can follow along in the notes there if you'd like to do that. Uh, As has already been mentioned, but I want to echo the comments that Ricky made earlier. If you are a guest with us today, we honestly, truly are glad that you are here. And myself and other leaders will be out front afterwards. We would really love the opportunity to get to shake a hand, uh, meet you face-to-face, answer any questions that you might have about why we are here in a mall, and how you could find and follow Jesus. As Ricky mentioned, that's why we're here to help you to do that. And in this series, it's a part of a bigger theme that we've been in since last September. We're about to launch a new one in the fall, but we're going to continue through the summer with this theme that we've been in that we've entitled Bold Faith. And uh, this whole idea is... How, as followers of Jesus, do we cultivate a bold faith? And so in this particular series, we're looking at a series of seven letters that were actually written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' intimate circle friends, his closest friends, uh, Peter and James, and this guy John. John was actually put on an island for being a follower of Jesus. They tried to kill him, and they couldn't kill him, so they just exiled him. And he's out on this island, and Jesus appears to him and gives him a series of messages for seven churches that were, had already been started and planted in these early years of the followers of Jesus. And so this one that we're going to look at today is the, the second or third here in this series that we've been in. And this letter is to the church in Smyrna. And so that's where we're going to be here in just a few moments. But before we get to that... I want to tell you a quick story to kind of help set the table for where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I'll take you back to Ash Grove, Missouri, uh, where I grew up in junior high and early high school years, and there was a set of tennis courts that I played on all the time while I was there, loved playing tennis and still enjoy it very much. While I was out there one day with my friend John, we were out there, and right across the street was this big open field. And we were known from time to time to shank balls while we would be playing. We would hit a ball and just kind of miss the center of the racket, and it would go off here, go off there. Well, this one particular day, I just totally mishit this ball, and it went not only out of the tennis court area, but across the street and out into the field, and it's across the field. And so, because we were poor high school students, uh, I ran across the street and said, I got to go find that ball. And so I go out there, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking around, and I'm looking around, and then I notice, oh, it's over there by that pile of dirt. 
And so I started to walk across. In fact, this is what in my head I saw that day, if we can go ahead and show that. That's what I thought. There was a tennis ball just off to a little bit to the left there from where I was that day, and I saw that, and I thought, okay, I gotta run over there. So I'm, I'm headed over that direction. But as I got closer, I realized that that was not a pile of dirt. As I got closer, it started to look like this. And then it started to look like this. And then I got up a little bit closer and it looked like this. And then I got right up on top of it and it looked like this. But that's not actually what I saw. I saw more like this. It was literally a nest of snakes. And it was that day that I screamed running across the street like a little girl. How many of you would be with me? Come on, grown men scream like little girls in the sight of all these snakes. And that was the day that I learned that things are not always what they seem. What I assumed at first was just a pile of dirt was actually a whole nest of snakes. And it didn't matter how many tennis balls we hit over there for the rest of our time. I never went over to that field again after that. But what we're going to look at today as we look through this story, uh, this letter rather, to this church in Smyrna, is that Jesus has some very specific things to say to them that he also has to say to you and I today to offer us hope. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the subject of suffering and what Jesus has to say for those of us who are suffering, those of us who may be persecuted, and certainly for the worldwide church who are in countries all around the world right now who don't have the freedom that we have on this July 4th weekend that we get to celebrate and we get to come here and not even think twice about gathering corporately in a body together. There are believers that are hiding in homes, that are hiding in basements or in attics because they are being persecuted. What does Jesus have to say to folks like that? And as we've studied these last several messages over this series. We've been looking at, there's generally, a, a, Jesus has something to encourage them to say, and then he has something challenging for them to say, and then he invites them to really pay attention to what the Spirit is saying. And so, in this particular letter, this is one of two churches that actually Jesus does not have something critical to say. He has just encouragement for them because they were suffering, because they were enduring persecution. And so if you come into this place today, and perhaps you've already answered the question, hey, how are things going? What's new? What's going on? And you've said, good, fine, everything's okay, but everything's not okay, everything's not good, and everything's not fine, I want to invite you to listen up because I think the Holy Spirit has some things to say to us today, that when we have the perspective that the first followers of Jesus had, it has tremendous insight and tremendous implications for how we live out this faith and certainly for believers around the world. And you may be thinking of someone today that you know is a missionary that's on the foreign field. You may be thinking of someone that you know and you love or you've heard about or you care about and they're serving somewhere in another part of the world, and it is rough to be a follower of Jesus. And perhaps we'll be praying and thinking about them today, lifting them up to the Lord today as we look through these verses. Now, 
Smyrna. Let me give you just a little bit of backdrop on the particular location. Smyrna is actually, of the seven churches, the only one that is still around today. We know it as Izmir, Turkey. You can see a picture of it up there on the screen. There, you'll see Israel down here in the middle and all the way up there to the left uh, where the dot is there, you'll find that is where Smyrna is. Smyrna actually means myrrh. Myrrh was a spice that they would use to anoint people uh, before they would bury them. Interesting about that. Smyrna, as you can see on the map, there is a harbor city. At the time that Jesus was speaking through John to this group of people, it was a city of around 100,000. Um, it was actually, interestingly, this is kind of cool, it's going to play into what we're going to see in a minute. Smyrna was actually destroyed in 580 BC, but then was resurrected from the ashes, so to speak, in about 290 BC. It was one of the very few cities in antiquity that was actually planned. Now, you, you go out, like when we go out to Missouri, to Springfield, you can see that there was a plan in place as they were building the streets and the roads because it was built, you know, here in the Berg, we have no plans, right? It's just everywhere hacking out of the mountains. Well, Smyrna was actually a planned city in antiquity. There, are, there were paved roads. There were civic centers. Uh, there, were, there was a library. Uh, there was a gymnasium. It was a center of science and medicine. And actually, it was claimed to be the place, the birthplace of Homer. So uh, that plays into it. And interestingly enough, again, this is going to play into what we're about to read. Smyrna was among all of those Roman cities that was very competitive. There was a tremendous sense of civic pride, as I mentioned earlier. And when if you were, you know, like we're, we're proud. I was in Missouri and uh, some of Amy's family came over and they said, hey, there's a tow truck out there carrying that van away. And, that, and I was like, my van? What's going on? He said, yeah, there's a Steelers plate on the front of it, and we don't want that here, okay? We're proud to be from the Berg, are we not? Steelers country here and other sports teams that we have. Smyrna had that, all right? They were among the top. They were always on top of the world in terms of the, the athletic games in the first century there. And in, interestingly, there was such a uh, connection to the Roman Empire and such a loyalty that they had one of the largest emperor cults. Tiberius was the emperor at the time, the Roman emperor, and there was a huge uh, system of religion that was built around Tiberius and the emperor cult worship that that would be involved in. And so all of that plays into what we're about to read here about what Jesus has to say. We've also discovered throughout history that there was a large Jewish population there in Smyrna. And the Jews, in addition to the Romans... And the Gentiles, they persecuted the church. And so if you were a follower of Jesus in the first century in Smyrna, you were persecuted. You were overlooked, you were marginalized, and you were not going to have an easy path as a follower of Jesus. And so into this, what does Jesus say to a group of people who say they follow him, but in the midst of this, they're persecuted, they're suffering, there's hardship, they're ostracized, they're on the outs, they're overlooked, and they're marginalized. What does Jesus say to a group of people who are in that moment, and what would he say to us today? And I would submit to you that as we walk through these verses, ultimately what Jesus is saying is things are not always what they seem. You see this in front of you, but things are not always what you see. What you see. 
Things are not always what they seem. You're experiencing this, but hey, there's something underneath this. There's something behind what's going on. And so with that in mind, I want us to begin looking through these verses because Jesus has some very cool things to say to us because life is deceptive and if we live by only what we see, we will totally miss what God is up to. We live, the scriptures say, by faith and not by sight. So Revelation 2, and we begin in verse 8, Jesus speaks through John and he says this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Now, let me just pause there. The angel there is another way of saying to the elder or to the pastor. So the local pastor, the local leaders of Smyrna were receiving this letter. That's, it's addressed to them to encourage the body of family of there. And when you think about the church in Smyrna, don't picture this. Don't picture hundreds of people gathering together or even dozens. You're talking about just a few. You're talking about house churches. In fact, there may have been a handful of house churches there, all considered the church in Smyrna. So he says, write these things. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I love the imagery here. He says that he's the first and the last. In other words, from the get-go, in fact, in each one of the letters that you see that Jesus writes to these churches, he always wants to say something to them that will contextually help them in what they're dealing with. And in this moment, Jesus wants to set the record straight. He is sovereign. He is in control. Smyrna is not first. Jesus is first. Jesus is sovereign. And the wording here is, it, the idea is all the way back actually connecting to the prophet Isaiah. I'm the first and I'm the last. And though you may look and see all this evil around you, I have not lost control. I am still sovereign. And then he reminds them that he died and he defeated death. And just like the city of Smyrna had been destroyed and had died in 580, they were brought back to life and so to speak, and there was activity and hustle and bustle now in this city by the time of Jesus and the time of John and the time of this writing, just as the city had died and come back to life and was active again, their Savior, who was in control, who was sovereign over all, had died and come back to life again. The thought here is that we are to be faithful, and you're going to see this theme throughout today, to be faithful to the one who knows death and the afterlife. John starts in this letter, Jesus speaks through him and says, I reign over all. I am preeminent. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And nothing that you are going to experience is beyond my capacity to help you through it. No matter what suffering, no matter what hardship, no matter what difficulty, I've already beaten death. I know what's on the other side. And because of that, you can rest assured that I will walk with you through this pain. And as a follower of Jesus, you and I, we don't serve a dead martyr. We serve a living Savior. And that ought to put a smile on your face. It's not something that's empty. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you're saying, why do all these people gather for this guy, Jesus? It's because he's beaten death. And we'll follow just about anybody who can prophesy their own death, die hideously, come back to life, and appear and prove himself faithful. There's nothing that you can go through when you see it through this set of lenses 
There's nothing that you can go through and nothing that can separate you from Christ's love. Things are not always what they seem. Do you see how Smyrna is, is hearing this and you see how appropriate it is for this church in Smyrna? They're in this painful season. They're wondering, Jesus, you said you beat death and hell and the grave and you came back and yet we're experiencing all this suffering and all this hardship and all this difficulty. Are you still like watching over us? Do you still care? Are you still aware of our circumstances? And perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you've been following for a while and stuff is really difficult, really hard right now. Perhaps you're on your campus or in your classroom this last year and you look back over this last year and it is nothing but persecution for standing up for your faith, for following Jesus and saying no when the temptations to go a different direction come your way. Jesus wants you to know that he cares and that things are not always what they seem. You may look at it through one set of lenses, but he's looking at it through a completely different set of lenses as one who has beaten whatever could be the possible worst in our lives, death. Is Christ still with me? Is he watching over me? The answer is yes. And when we think we're gonna crack under the pressure, we need to know that there's a God in heaven who is watching over us. Jesus says to you and to me today, those of us that are feeling the pressure and the strain, I'm watching, I am the first, I am the last, I am the beginning, I am the end, I am sovereign over all. And whatever you're facing today must be looked through that lens. Because when you do that, when you get through that and you understand that and you live in light of that, remember the words that Ricky read. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The Lord is near. Be gracious to everybody. The Lord is near. He's writing that from a Roman prison. How do you write those kinds of words from prison? Well, you see that you follow the one who's already conquered death and knows the afterlife, but there's more. In verse nine, he says, I know your afflictions. It's the idea of a burden that crushes. It's serious trouble. Afflictions is a very, very intense word. I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. I know your abject poverty. Literally, they had nothing in this society that they could cling to. And yet, he says, you are rich. So we're challenged to be faithful to the one who knows pain and who knows poverty. They didn't possess a lot. They were experiencing economic hardship, verbal abuse, physical abuse. And Jesus says, hey, I know your afflictions. I know the pain that you're enduring. I know the difficulty that you're facing. And some teach that if you follow Jesus, if you live for him, that you won't go through pain. You won't go through hardship. It'll all be great. It'll all be easy. That's a lie. And if you've bought into that version of Christianity, you've bought into a fake, false version of Christianity. In fact, I would challenge you to look anywhere in the scriptures. You will see that no person who followed Jesus did so without difficulty. None of them had a cakewalk. In fact, they were all martyred for him. They all died for this one who they said that they followed. And they did it because they saw him die and they saw him alive. 
And they said, he knows the afterlife. He understands my pain. He understands my poverty. He understands the difficulty. And he's faithful. So I choose to be faithful, even though I'm persecuted. Wasn't just they were facing illnesses or facing relational challenges. They were facing persecution like we can't fully comprehend. Chances are none of you have got nailed to anything this week physically, right? Nobody got scourged. Nobody got flogged. Nobody got fed to the lions. Anybody survive a Colosseum this week? No. These people did. That was actually funny. I'm not sure if you guys are there. But. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck, for laughing. I saw you back there. <clears throat> Jesus knew pain. He knew poverty. Think about this. He left the glory and the splendor of heaven. He went from riches to rags for you and I. He walked hundreds of miles. He was a carpenter. He knew the physical pain that we face. He knew the betrayal. He knew the difficulties that we face. He made himself nothing, becoming the very nature in person, a servant. And that's the paradox. Look at this paradox in this particular church's experience. He says, hey, I know you're in pain. I know you're totally impoverished, but actually you're rich. You're rich. The thought that I think here about this is that poverty does not determine wealth. Whether you're rich or poor is determined by what standard or what measure you use. And rich here, think about this for a minute. You may feel like you're in poverty, but rich here compared to rich in Cambodia really sets it clear, doesn't it? Make it makes it clear, doesn't it? It depends on the standard that you use or the measure that you use. And Jesus says, let me set the record straight. On the standard that I use, you are wealthy beyond imagination because you have me and you are a joint heir with me and you will be with me and my heavenly father forever. And so you can endure suffering because I know pain, I know poverty and things are not always what they seem. I know your tribulation, he says, personally to you. I know your pain, your difficulties. He really does know and he really does care. And things, though you may not even realize it, are not always what they seem. He goes on and he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but instead they're a synagogue of Satan. <laughs> not every day you hear that, huh? That's your homework for the week. Figure out how to slip synagogue of Satan into your everyday conversations this week. Good luck. He says, I know the slander. I know how people are blaspheming you. I know the extreme hardship that you're enduring from people who aren't necessarily Jewish physically or by their birthright, but they say spiritually that they're Jews. They've become a synagogue of Satan. In other words, Satan doesn't care how he, what he has to use. He could use emperor worship. He could get everybody to believe in Tiberius as God, Caesar as Lord, or he can just get Judaism to reject the Messiah. It didn't matter. His plan was working. So the challenge for us from these verses is to be faithful to the one who knows opposition. Religious people aren't necessarily righteous, and Jesus experienced that firsthand from the people that were around him. He experienced opposition 
from Herod right out of the gate. He's born. Herod wants to kill him. He experienced opposition from the Jewish leaders, the religious people that were supposed to embrace him. They rejected him. He experienced opposition from his hometown, even from his family. Again, I've said it so many times. Imagine your brother claimed to be God, how hard that would be to believe, or your sister claimed to be God. He experienced opposition from the crowds at times. He experienced opposition from the Romans. He experienced opposition even from his inner circle in Judas and the betrayal there. And he knows opposition firsthand. He knows the opposition that you're experiencing at work, the persecution and the hardship that you experience for choosing to be a man or a woman of integrity and not sell out to poor business practices, to not sell out to poor relational habits. He knows and he understands that because he experienced that kind of stuff firsthand. And John, for the very first time in the book of Revelation, reveals to us the ultimate source of our opposition in these verses. Namely, the one who opposes you is Satan. Our wrestling, our struggling, our fight in this life is not against flesh and blood. And you may go home today and that may be the reminder that you need to look at suffering through a different set of lenses. That you're not fighting against him. You're not fighting against her. You're, forget, you're fighting against the one who desires to steal, kill, and destroy you and those you care about. Things are not always what they seem. So Jesus tells them, this church that's persecuted, that's hurting, and he speaks to us, hey, I know, I know opposition. I know pain. I know poverty. I know what it's like to be overlooked. I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to have to face death. And so because he has firsthand knowledge, he speaks these words that are meant to encourage, that are meant to inspire, that are meant to cultivate bold faith in these followers then and in our faith today. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Notice he doesn't say, hey, I'm taking you out of the suffering. I'm gonna have you jump over that or go around that. No, he says, you're gonna suffer. But just know that I'm going to be there with you in it. And if the theology, again, that you bought into is it's not gonna be difficult, get a new theology right now, today. Understand that it's going to be difficult, but he is there with you in the suffering. Notice what it says. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. It's a reference back to the time of Daniel and a very brief but intense period of persecution that Daniel experienced. He's drawing on that language again here in these moments. It's a way of saying, hey, you're going to suffer you're going to experience difficulty and hardship, but it will be a small amount of time. You will not have to endure this forever. He's giving them hope in the midst of their pain and their hurt. He's giving them hope. He says, be faithful, even to the point of death. We would not really like that last part, right? We just want the first part. Be faithful. 
even to the point of death. And I will give you, say it with me, life. I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious or the one who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What in the world is all that about? Well, he says, be faithful. And the challenge for us in those verses is to be faithful to the one who knows that suffering isn't the end of the story and death isn't the end of life. And it's so tempting, isn't it, to think that suffering is the end of the story, to think that death is the end of life. Why do we get so discouraged when we're suffering? Think about that. Why are you so discouraged when you go through times of suffering? I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like I lose perspective. I lose sight of the bigger picture. And something inside of me says, I guess this is just my lot in life. Maybe I'll never escape. And that may be your attitude. There may be something else that hits you. But Jesus says, sometimes suffering comes along to show you and I either the strength or the fragility of our faith. And Proverbs 24.10 says, if you fail in the day of adversity, you have a weak faith. Ouch. It's painful. It's challenging. It's confrontational, but that's who Jesus is at times. But suffering, I'm here to tell you today, suffering isn't the end of the story. There is a plan and a purpose behind the suffering, behind the persecution. You say, well, what is that plan? What is that purpose? When I'm experiencing those difficulties and those trials, those persecutions, and when I see that happening around the world, what is it? What's the purpose? What's the plan? And here's the answer. I don't know. But I know somebody who does. And I know that he suffered and he died to help me when I don't understand. Sometimes the pain, sometimes the persecution is to grow me, is to grow you, to cultivate a deeper trust, a deeper reliance upon God. Sometimes just being honest it's actually discipline. It's a heavenly father disciplining us when we need it. We don't like that side of God, but it's the truth. It's his reaction to sin. Sometimes it's a prescription for perseverance. We learn obedience. In fact, the New Testament says that Jesus learned obedience through discipline, through hardship, through difficulties. And sometimes there's just something mysterious or something cosmic going on and I have no idea why I'm going through a difficult time. So Jesus says to Smyrna, he says to you and I today, your pain is real. Your suffering is hard. But it's not the end of the story. 
Hang in there. There is a reward beyond your wildest imaginations that's coming that will make all your suffering pale in comparison. There's a reward. He mentions it right there. We've been talking about it in each of these messages. It's the crown of life. It was the crown that was given to the victor, picturing that idea of a crown that was given to the victor in the Roman games, the athletic games. But there's more. It's not just the crown. There's actually something so much better than that. He says, those who love and live for him, those who love and live in light of Jesus will not face the second death. What is death? Biblically, it is a gateway to something else. The writers of Scripture, and Jesus taught this certainly, believed that there was something after this life. And the death was a gateway. And for followers of Jesus, he says, you will not experience the second death. Yes, you will experience death, but then after you have died, you will be with me in the presence of my heavenly Father, and life will be like it was meant to be, whole and full and satisfying. But for those who choose to not follow Jesus, who decide not to embrace this one who gave his life for us, they not only experience the first death, physical death, but there is, it's a gateway to the second death, which is death and more death and more death and more death. It's just ugly. And it's eternal separation from God. And while I've been away on vacation, this was the last thing that I wanted to come back and talk to you about. But it's because I love you and care about you for those of you that come week after week, month after month, maybe year after year, and you're kind of toying around with following Jesus, you're kind of exploring, today I want to implore you to put your faith in Christ, to stop messing around because you don't know. And I'm not trying to threaten you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm trying to be honest with you because I love you enough to tell you that there is a second death that you do not want to experience for all of eternity. And Jesus gave his life so that you could have life eternal, life everlasting, so that the suffering and the persecution of this life actually has a meaning, it has a purpose, because it's preparing you for that victor's crown. He who has ears, the Spirit is speaking in these moments. Jesus says, Smyrna, hey, I know death feels hard, and some of you, you will die for my name, but don't be afraid because you won't even feel the second death. All the suffering will be gone, and you'll be with me forever. So hang on. Be faithful unto death. That's our major thought today. Be faithful to Jesus. As the worship team comes, there were three men who were so impacted by Jesus that they wrote letters and they followed him faithfully all the way to their deaths. A guy by the name of Paul who first hated Jesus but then got totally transformed. A guy by the name of Peter 
and a guy by the name of James who was the brother of Jesus. And because these men actually experienced the death, they saw the death, and they experienced the resurrected Christ, it changed their perspective on suffering. And I've included in your notes three ways that they talked about this that I want to conclude with this morning. And I don't want you to miss the power of these because when your lenses are switched out and you get a hold of this, suffering gets really, really clear when you understand what God is doing, developing us, cultivating within us a spirit of perseverance, a spirit of endurance. Listen to how each of these writers wrote. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles. You see, we think of that and we think instantaneous. Oh yeah, seven minutes later, I'm out of that. (laughs) This could be weeks, months, or even years. But for Paul, it was a light and momentary trouble are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Peter writing, he says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. Seriously, Peter? Seriously? You want me to be glad for these trials? Why can we be glad? Because these trials make us partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. And Jesus' brother James wrote these words, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul, how do you have that perspective? Peter, how do you have that viewpoint? James, how could you write those words? Because we saw somebody die who claimed to be God and he is alive and he is guiding us and he is directing us and he is filling us with a bold faith. And it just so happens that most likely the day that the church in Smyrna was unpacking this letter that John had written on behalf of the resurrected Savior just so happens that in that group, there was most likely a young man sitting there who we know today to be one of the most famous Christians outside of those apostles and and the apostle Paul. His name was Polycarp. If you're familiar with church history, you know that he became the bishop of Smyrna. And he led the church. He was actually discipled personally by John. John, the apostle, poured into Polycarp. And he faithfully served Jesus. And he was the leader of the church in Smyrna until around 155, 156 AD. Roman bounty hunters tracked him down. They arrested him. They brought him to the proconsul. And they brought him into the Colosseum. 
And the proconsul kept saying over and over again, reject the Christ. Turn away from him and you'll live. But Polycarp said, no, I'm not going to do that. And that day in the Colosseum, the crowd was crying out, loose the beast, loose the lions, let the lions get him. The proconsul said, you know what? We're not going to do that today. We're going to actually burn this guy alive. And so they put him up against the stake and they were prepared to drive the nails in through his hands so they would hold him there. And he said, guys, you don't need to do that. I'll stay right here. And they gave him one last chance, reject the Christ. And he said these words that you'll find in your notes. 86 years I have served Christ. And he has done me, never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they lit that fire And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of the Old Testament story in the book of Daniel, Polycarp did not burn. And they looked on in astonishment. And one of the Roman soldiers grabbed a spear and he threw it into the fire and it pierced his heart. And he bled out. And that day, Polycarp in the flames as the fire was beginning, said, thank you, Jesus, for allowing me to be considered among your martyrs. Why was he able to do that? How was he able to do that? Because he knew that he followed one who had faced death, who knew it intimately and was guaranteed of an afterlife, who knew his pain, understood his poverty, who had experienced opposition and had, was not absent in Polycarp's deepest need and in that moment. And I'm telling you, the church spread like wildfire when they saw the bold faith of Polycarp. And Jesus is looking for us to have bold faith as well today. So when you have the diagnosis come your way, be faithful to me, Jesus says. Things are not always what they seem when your job is on the line. Be faithful to me. Things are not always what they seem. When your house is going under, when you can't pay the bills, be faithful to Jesus because things are not always what they seem. When your family is falling apart and your parents are divorcing or there's conflict with children and they're walking away from God, you be faithful to Jesus because things are not always what they seem. He's doing a work that you and I cannot see. Do not give up. Be faithful to Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for leaving these words recorded for us that we might have the capacity to with bold faith echo the words of Polycarp however many years it is for us. For him, it was 86. For us, it might be 50, 60, 70. It might be 10. It might be 15. But we could say we would be faithful to you no matter what. Send your Holy Spirit. Thank you for reminding us that things are not always what they seem. Thank you for sending us your Spirit. And for those of us who need to experience life eternal, 
We need to step across that line. Help us to acknowledge our sin, to agree with you about it, to ask you to forgive us, to cleanse us, to live inside of us that we might follow you with everything that is within us. We might be saved, that we might be rescued, that we might have that eternal life that you offer us, Jesus. It's in your matchless, powerful name we pray together. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.